Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. You know, we've been inundated in our lives with end-of-the-world novels, end-of-the-world books, uh, Mr. LaHaye's books left behind about people taken away by the rapture and the rest of us left behind, or the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, uh, detailing about all the scriptural basis for what's going to happen here at the end. It's all the product of the very uh, fertile imagination of American Protestants and what's called uh, post-millennial dispensationalism. And the idea is that we're just in the last dispensation um, before Jesus comes by. I just finished reading a book by George Marsden that's the history of the rise of fundamentalism in the United States. And he points out that in the uh, 18th and 17th century, the uh, ancestors of our modern fundamentalists were much more hopeful. They were called post-millennialists. They believed that the millennium had already ended. Jesus had come and freed us. And the world was just going to keep getting better until it was the kingdom of God. But, you know, human despair and pessimism really creeps in, especially during the Enlightenment. And we get to where we are now with this surfeit of books and novels about the end of the world. But you know, for my money, the best one is called The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And it's not a particularly religious book. McCarthy is somewhere between an atheist and agnostic, according to online information about him. But The Road is such a good book. It's just so dire. It's about a father and a son. The wife has given birth to the son and then abandoned them both because she knows if she continues on in this apocalyptic wasteland the United States has begun, become rather, that uh, she's just going to be uh, raped repeatedly by marauders and then um, eaten because that's what's happened. What happens when all of your uh, institutions collapse? There's no federal, state, or local government. There are no police, federal, or state. There's no military. There's no schools. There's no church. There's just ruined buildings. There's no Circle Ks. They make their way across this ruined gray landscape with constant overcast from uh, whatever happened to destroy the world because McCarthy never says it. Um, but they dig up old apples from an orchard, or they find a house and find some food buried. But just the horrors along the way of uh, people uh, imprisoned in cellars and being used as food by cannibals, children being eaten, oh my God, Cormac McCarthy's horrible imagination runs wild. Um, until they make it to the, I guess, the Gulf of Mexico uh, and... Uh, there the man dies, but the boy uh, is, is adopted by a man, his wife, and I think they're two kids. Um, Dad's always told son throughout the entire book that uh, they're the good guys and they're carrying the light, um, that they can always talk in prayer. It's kind of this shady religious overtone to the book The Road. And at the end, when the little boy goes off with his new family, He's assured by the father there that they're the good guys. Well, think of that story arc. Who's the first person that tells that story arc? You're right. It's our Lord Jesus. 
and Mark may be the earliest recounting of it in chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark. But it really has the very same uh, elements to the story that The Road by Cormac McCarthy has without the weirdness of the Tim LaHaye books about Left Behind, and they are weird. It's a weird way of reading scripture. But McCarthy gets how important institutions are. And one of the reasons I want to approach the readings for the 33rd Sunday in ordinary time is because it's about the temple. And I want to talk about why the temple, as corrupt as it was, as messed up as it was, was this essential institution in Jewish life. And when it went away, it completely unhinged Jewish culture and uh, really gave us the, the, the Christian church as we know it. You know, it's very fashionable to attack all our institutions at every single level. But friends, read the book, The Road, and, and we'll ask what happens if you don't have any institutions. Then look in your heart of hearts and ask how reasonable is it to expect our institutions and the people that populate them um, to be perfect. We have uh, expectations about our fellow Americans in government that perhaps nobody can achieve. And so institutions and society and the end of the world, those are the readings today in the 33rd Sunday of Ordinary Time as we prepare for the end of the liturgical year and the end of the world. But ultimately, it's about the temple, the new temple, and the cosmos. Hey, if you like Oral Valley Catholic, take the time to, to like it. Maybe repost it and share it with your friends. Let's turn and talk about the gospel. I think it's hard for us 21st century Christians to understand how important the temple, the priesthood, and animal sacrifice was in the first century. I mean, imagine a religion that goes back well over a thousand years, that the whole world offers animal sacrifices, because this is how you uh, reduce the tension of the conflict between God and the human being. And so that the temple, which was the second temple in Jewish history, that's there when, uh, in Jesus' time, and the priesthood, which is offering sacrifices on the day that the Romans overrun it. And what are they sacrificing? Bulls and sheep and goats and turtle doves. But Christianity turns that all on its head. If you have the time, read the second reading for the 33rd Sunday. It's from Hebrews 10. Here's what it says. Brothers and sisters, every priest stands daily at his ministry, offering frequently those same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But this one offered one sacrifice for sins and took his seat forever at the right hand of God. Now he waits until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has made perfect forever those who are being consecrated. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer offering for sin. The book of Hebrews describes how Jesus is the new high priest, not a according to the order of Aaron and Zadok, which is the Mosaic priesthood, but the order of Melchizedek, which goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. But he's also the sacrifice 
uh, offered on the altar. And we've been talking about that, um, and the altar is the cross. We've been talking about that in Mark, about for the early Christians, that it's the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus that is the revelation of who God is. Otherwise, God looks a lot like all the Greek gods, something very different for a God who accompanies you through death and suffering. And so since Jesus is the one that offers the priest, uh, offers the sacrifice, he's the priest. So he's the priest, he's the altar, that is the temple, and he is the sacrifice. And the kind of sacrifice that the sacrifice of the cross was, was called an oblation. An oblation is where part of the sacrifice goes up to God, other part goes to the person who made the offering. It's uh, the priests. And so the Eucharist that you and I receive at Mass is an oblation. Uh, The sacrifice offered once for all, which is what Hebrews says, that sacrifice offered once for all is made available uh, in all the altars of, of the Orthodox and Catholic churches so that we as the priesthood of the new covenant can come and receive our priestly portion, um, the bread and the cup. You know, Martin Luther, at the time of the Reformation, he was basically the founding mind behind the Lutherans, claimed that Catholics offered up um, Jesus uh, a thousand times a day. Uh, He's offered over and over again. But what the Bible says, he was offered once and for all. But you know, Martin, Martin Luther was mostly a propagandist. Um, I think even some Lutherans think that about him because the Lutheranism really depends on some subsequent thinkers. Luther, Martin Luther, is recognized as the guy that got the ball rolling. But some of the things that he said about the church at the time were just deeply misleading propaganda. The Council of Trent, however, set it straight. And he says that what we do at Mass in this priest, temple, and sacrifice is that it's a participatory sacrifice, that this once for all on the cross is made available through time. The cosmic Christ, the temple, not simply a building on a place in a time, but the temple spread throughout the world from Jerusalem to China to the United States, northern and southern hemispheres, western and eastern, everywhere preached um, and everywhere the sacrifice of Christ is offered again, not as a new sacrifice, but as a participation in that original offering that you offer yourself uh, body and soul and spirit right along with Jesus and as a priest uh, in, 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 through your baptism, you receive your part of the oblation. So what happened to the temple that was in Jerusalem where all these animals were sacrificed, where on Passover it used to make this little river run red with the blood of little lambs? Imagine how much blood was shed because in those sacrifices to make it kosher, you had to drain all the blood out of the animals. And so the rivers would just, the little streams would just run red because there were drains there in the temple where these little sheep and these goats were were sacrificed. But 
It's that temple that the reading from today is about. And so I'm going to read you the gospel because uh, chapter 13 can be confusing if you don't understand how it's composed. Here's the part that we have from towards the end of chapter 13. Jesus said to his disciples, In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in heaven will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the end of the sky. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that he is near at the gates. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things have taken a place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's the end of the gospel for today. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, it's interesting to just go through that little pericope, and I'm going to talk about all of chapter 13. But that first part, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the sky. These cosmic portents. Well, that's drawn directly from Isaiah 13, which has the very same language, but it's about the destruction of Babylon by the Persians and the Medes. But the destruction of Babylon is like the destruction of the temple. Um, a huge change is coming to the world. A new empire is taking over and is going to dominate the Jewish people. But then Jesus says, when you see these signs, then you'll see the Son of Man. That's a figure from, the, from Daniel, which was, I think, the first reading. But the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And you remember that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. So coming at the end of the glory cloud of God, which goes back uh, to Moses and the Exodus and the first temple and Solomon, this glory cloud is God coming down on the world, that this clearly is an eschatological reality. That is, it's at the end of history. And so when Tim LaHaye and, and Hal Lindsey are writing these books, The Great Planet Earth or the Left Behind series, that's what they're talking about, something that happens at the end of history. But this is what's caused confusion. The next branch, the next quote is, Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things have taken place. See, that's what makes confusion. Because Jesus hasn't come again. But then it says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So what the heck? On one part, he says, this generation will not pass away until all this, these things have taken place, which makes it sound like he knows when it's going to happen. Then the very next line says, But of that day or hour, no one knows, not are the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So what's going on here? And so I'm going to explain. In chapter 13, there are two things going on. The first part starts with the destruction of the temple, which was accomplished by the Roman army under Vespasian and Titus 
in the year 70. Both Vespasian and Titus would later become Roman emperors. And so a generation that sat there on Mount, the Mount of Olives, this is the Olivet Discourse in chapter 13. This is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. That his apostles that sat there and listened to this, they would actually be alive when Rome, uh, at least some of them, when, um, when Rome destroyed uh, uh, Jerusalem. Paul and Peter have probably been executed, but John lives well past that. Um, and, but the other part is, is about the end of the world. And that's what the reading is that I read to you. It's about the, God, the glory cloud and Christ coming at the end of the world. So you have to see that there are two different things happening in this reading. You know, um, in Gospel of Mark, it's easy to get confused. The, um, in the 19th century, and remember that book I was telling you about, about evangelicals, which was so interesting. They split in the 19th century over this passage, interestingly enough. It's because German scholars looked at that and they read it all about the end of the world. They ignored the part about the temple. And when they read it all about the end of the world, what they argued was Jesus didn't come again, the world didn't end, so he can't be God. If he's not God, then he's a wise teacher and says some really good things. But clearly, if his prophecies come, don't come true, he's not God. This was Adolf von Harnack and others apparently argued this. And so what happened in the Protestant world, where the word of God was treated like it was just a series of facts, um, if Jesus was not infallible, then none of it was. And that's where you get the big split in Protestantism in the second half of the 19th century between what's known as liberal Protestantism and what ultimately becomes fundamentalist Protestantism. Liberal Protestantism is the well-known thing that Jesus is a very wise guy and we should do the social justice gospel because he's our teacher. And of course, as Marsden points out, by the 60s and 70s, that had exhausted itself. And it's kind of where you get the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, according to uh, Marsden. People who see that you can establish something like the kingdom of God by using the wealth of the nation. But the fundamentalist um, kept to the inerrancy of Scripture. And so when they read it, that's how you get to how Lindsay and uh, the late great planet Earth. It's really in, it was really interesting because the evangelicals, evangelicals were such an important part of our country's history, uh, but so much of it has just simply gone away in the last hundred years. So do you remember I said in this chapter, this is about two things. It's about the end of the world, but it's also about the destruction of the temple. So let me point this out. If you go back to Mark 13 chapters, I mean, verses 1 to 8, and remember the previous uh, the reading started at verse 24. So we're talking about something at the beginning of 13 and at the end. Here's how 13 starts out. Uh, remember, Jesus is in the temple precinct. He was watching the widow putting in her two cents last week. So here's the next story. As he was making his way out of the temple area, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what stones and what buildings? And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. So he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple area. 
Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when this will happen and what sign there will be when all these things are about to come to an end. So there's two questions about the destruction of the temple and everything coming to the end. That's what the questions are. And so Jesus answers both of them. Then Jesus began to say to them, See that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and reports of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but will not be yet be the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes from place to place. There will be famines. These are the beginnings of the labor pains. And so what's the beginning of the labor pains? Jesus' crucifixion, followed by the destruction of the temple, and then the end of the world is going to follow. We're 2,000 years into that story. But that this idea that the temple is at the heart of the cosmos, where does that come from? Interestingly enough, where that comes from is the Sadducees, and one of them is called Simon the Righteous, and you can read this in Sirach 50. And Simon the Righteous, according to Sirach 50, is the greatest of his family, the glory of his people, was Simeon, the priest, son of Jochanan, in whose time the house of God was renovated, in whose days the temple was reinforced. In his time also, the retaining wall was built with powerful turrets for the temple precincts. And in his time, the reservoir was dug, a pool as vast as the sea. And so the idea of the temple that I'm going to develop, though it was the cosmos in a microcosmos. And so the temples were God and the world come to be. And so the temple, according to Simon the Righteous, is what holds the world in existence because it's God's footstool. So... Here's what uh, he said is quoted in, in an article I read. By three things is the world sustained. By the law, that's the Torah. By the temple, the service of sacrifice. And by deeds of loving kindness. And Simon emphasized that for most Jews, even those in the diaspora, the temple's function as a cultic center was self-evidence. And historically, what's important and I think Josephus makes this point, a first century Jewish historian, that most diaspora Jews, people who rarely if ever made it back to Jerusalem, faithfully paid the temple tax because the temple was their link with God. You know, um, uh, Josephus and Philo both talked about the temple and the glories of the temple. So imagine a place that had this huge reservoir of water in this bronze basin that represented the sea. That veil that, was the, that concealed the Holy of Holies, on that were the constellations in the, in the, in the sky were all embroidered on that. Um, and inside of it was an altar. Uh, it should be, there should have been the uh, Ark of the Covenant, but that had been lost by then. But there was an altar, a table where the showbread was, an incense altar, because you offer incense. Remember, Zechariah did that in the Gospel of, uh, of Luke. And a lampstand, all of which are listed in the law. They're all supposed to have been in the tabernacle that went for the people in the desert, then to Solomon's temple, and now in this temple. 
Although the Babylonians took the ones that David and Solomon had put in there and took them up to Babylon. So by the time you get to the first century, everything's just uh, a recreation. Um, but Josephus says that Herod spared no expense. It was The temple was massive. It's where the El Aqsa Mosque is now in Jerusalem. But Josephus said, writing after the Jewish war, and Josephus was a Jewish general captured by the Romans who went turncoat. And then after all the Jewish people were enslaved or killed, then he began to write uh, stories of books about the Jewish people because he was trying to get the Roman emperor to let him rebuild the temple, which obviously has never happened. But what Josephus said is that the exterior of the temple wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. It is said to have appeared to approaching strangers from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, while people close to it had to avert their eyes because the gleaming gold blinded them with which it was covered. You know, when Jesus talks about vineyards and fig trees, these are always images of Israel. And these are part of the core of the temple and the courtyard around the temple. So when he's talking about vineyards and fig trees, he's alluding to the temple because it's so tied into the heart of what it meant to be a first century Jew. And so um, this, I thought, was one of the most interesting parts in one of the articles I read that there's this big bronze bowl full of water and it stands for the sea. And you remember that in Genesis, God separates the waters so there's room for the world. And so this sea, this chaos, this is um, this chaotic pre-creation reality. This is there in symbol in the temple. And so the year 70, um, Vespasian and Titus and their legionnaires um, attack Gamla where they capture Josephus. Then they go down to Jerusalem and they invest Jerusalem. According to Eusebius, who is a fourth century Christian uh, writer, ecclesiastical history and some other books, he said that when the Romans approached, the Christians, the Jewish Christians, had listened to Jesus's prophecy about the destruction of the temple. And as they saw these legionaries coming and the legions are basically stabbing machines. They've got all of these slaves that they captured at Gamla, all these Jewish slaves. Doesn't it sound like the road, the book I was telling you about, where these armies of, of guys with beards and lead pipes, according to Cormac McCarthy, are leading women who are pregnant and enchained to use them for whatever and food. And then he says, he doesn't say children, he says catamites, all of them brought along for the pleasure of these, of these cannibal armies. Well, wow, McCarthy might as well have been talking about Rome. Um, they said that during the siege, people turned to cannibalism. They sure did uh, during the Babylonian siege when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in the the 7th century BC. These are how horrible these histories are. And so when you're talking about the destruction of the temple and cosmic destruction, these are things that are in cultural memory through the scriptures. So what actually happened, according to Josephus, was that the Jewish people 
set fire to the temple themselves and destroyed it themselves when the when the Romans were breaching the wall. Um, whatever made them do that uh, is not at all obvious. But then the Romans just slaughtered him and uh, executed 500 Jewish men a day and then did what they wanted with the rest of them. And then Titus ordered his legionaries to get their slaves and they pulled the temple mount apart, stone by stone, and threw it over the edge. That's why when you go to Jerusalem, and you'll still see some heaps around there, thrown off the edge uh, by the Roman siege, the only thing that's left is the Wailing Wall, which was just a retaining wall for the temple. And so what Jesus said came true in uh, a generation. But in the 19th century, they didn't understand that two things were being talked about there, or if they're in the Enlightenment, perhaps they didn't care. There's one thing I want to note, because it's one of those little interesting historical notes. Mark chapter 13, verses 17 to 18. Here's what Jesus says. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that this does not happen in winter. You know, some modern scripture scholars who want to poo-poo Jesus is a prophet, and it's this whole anti-historical thing that takes place in the modern world, trying to under, undermine Christianity, mostly because of Christianity's moral teachings. What's interesting about that line is the actual destruction of the temple is still memorialized by the Jews because they know when it happened. Um, it happened under their lunar calendar, but it happened in July, August. And so you think that if this prophecy, which is concocted by Mark after the events, which is what um, uh, I was taught in the seminary and is not true, is, well, why wouldn't they say, oh, and this happens in August of, you know, in the, the month of, then beware. And then it would be exactly on for future Christian believers. No, that's exactly when the temple was destroyed because Jesus was... Uh, I wouldn't say he was wrong about the timing. He just said, um, he just says, hopefully it won't happen in the winter. And so there's an interesting little historical point and why the Christians abandoned Jerusalem before the Romans arrived. I want to bring this all to an end. Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, and at the end, passes for what's a happy ending for Cormac McCarthy, who is a dark, dark soul. The little boy finds a dad and a mom and a family, and they have the light. But in McCarthy's telling how important our institutions are, the temple is so important, how it held the Jewish world together. You probably know that one of the reasons the evangelicals supported the founding of the modern state of Israel is that they hoped they'd rebuild the temple because in their reading of the scriptures, that's what'll bring Jesus back. Well, I don't think you can call God's hand. Jesus says it, no one knows the day or the hour. But what Jesus was addressing was the fear of his time and occupied power. Why we read books like Cormac McCarthy or Tim LaHaye or uh, the Great Lake, Great Planet Earth, which I read in high school and it was scary because I believed it at the time, um, is that we're run by fear. Our whole culture runs on fear. But Jesus' story is very much about hope, that um, God is coming. 
that the temple has been restored in the resurrection and that we are the restored temple and it will endure until the end of time. So read The Road by Cormac McCarthy. There's a dark tale. And think about the original telling there on the Mount of Olives with Jesus and his disciples. This has been another uh, episode of Oro Valley Catholic. God bless you all. Remember me in your prayers and I'll remember you in mine.